Welcome again, Professor Patrick Lord from Doha in Qatar, the Georgetown University faculty in that country. And we're very, very grateful that you've joined us again for this second in the series of podcast interviews on the writings of Fritjof Schuon. And last time we looked at a particular chapter in the Transcendent Unity of Religions, and now we're going to start rather more systematically going through one chapter uh, from each of Shuon's works, going through more or less chronologically. So we'll start again now properly with the Transcendent Unity of Religions, and this will be the beginning of what we hope will be about 30 or 40 sessions once a month, on each of the books of Shuan that we will discuss, uh, each chapter, one chapter from each of the books of Shuan. So today we're going to look at chapter one of the Transcendent Unity of Religions, uh, Conceptual Dimensions. And I'd like to start by asking you what you consider to be the most salient points that Shuan is making in this chapter. Well, thank you very much, Reza. I hope I'm not going to repeat myself too much. Uh, I already spoke about this, this chapter uh, a few weeks ago, was it last month? But at any rate, um, what I uh, would consider to be the most important points in this chapter um, have to do or has to do with um, the various ways in which one may know according to uh, to the gnosis of, of Shion. Yes. Um, Patrick, sorry to interrupt. We're having a little bit of problem hearing you, so could you speak as loudly as possible? Yes. Uh, is it better? This That's way? better, yeah. Yes. Yes. So, um, I'm going to speak briefly about the, the various ways in which one may know, uh, or if you wish, perhaps, the, the different degrees of, of, of knowledge or knowing according to, to Shion in this chapter. Um, the, the first one is what he refers to as theoretical knowledge, uh, which is basically a notional conceptual understanding of the literality, so to speak, of an idea or set of ideas. Beyond that, and he, he compares uh, this, this, this type of knowing uh, to uh, uses various metaphors, various symbols, but one of them is that of the, of the point. Right. Um, because the point for him excludes other points. And therefore, there is something in this type of knowledge, in purely theoretical knowledge, there is something static. And therefore, there is something that prevents this kind of knowledge to be uh, all-encompassing, to be right. integral. Right. Um, so that's the first type of knowledge. The second type of knowledge is the one that he refers to as speculative, speculative, yes. uh, from the Latin speculum, the mirror, and 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 the, and the symbol of the mirror of the intellect that has been used in. For example, by, by Titus Bocard, as the title of one of his books, um, the speculative or speculative knowledge is different from the theoretical knowledge, uh, in as much as it involves motion, 
displacement mm -hmm. within space, met metaphorically or symbolically speaking. Mm. Uh, what does it mean? Well, it means that speculative knowledge presupposes an ability to move from point of view, from two point of view, from yes. one point of view to another point of view on the same object. Right. In this case, of course, Shion is referring mostly to the divine object or to the absolute or to the ultimate reality. So, um, in a sense, I mean, speculative means also mirror, as I said, so it's a way to um, reflect a particular aspect or particular aspects of the infinity of the ultimate. Right. Um, and this speculative knowledge, he compares at times to uh, an element in a circle. Uh, why so? Because when you have a circle, you have, of course, the possibility of moving around the circle, around the periphery of the circle. The circle is a unity, but at the same time, it's, it's, it also involves a plurality of vantage points mm. uh, in relation to the center. Right. Speculative knowledge is, I would say, probably the norm in what one could call traditional metaphysics. Uh, East and West. Um, and that's the reason why the greatest metaphysicians uh, can at times appear to contradict themselves, not only, mm -hmm. not only contradict each other, but even to contradict themselves because mm -hmm. they may speak or they may write or they may teach uh, from a particular angle, from a particular standpoint mm -hmm. one day and the next day from another one mm -hmm. um, without any contradiction. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the second type of knowledge, speculative knowledge. And then there's a third knowledge, and Shion doesn't really uh, deal with it very much in this particular chapter, uh, but it is the consummation, so to speak, and the perfection of knowledge. It's knowledge by identity. Knowledge by? By identity. Identity. Uh, knowledge by identity. You know, there's right. a chapter of Shion, knowing is being. Right. No, no, knowing by being or mm. knowledge by identity, and this is self-knowledge. It's God's knowledge of himself through ourselves, through the right. human um, being. So in a sense, it's not our knowledge. Right. Uh, it is God's knowledge through us. It's what uh, Shion refers to as gnosis. Right. Or it's, um, in the language of Advaita Vedanta, of course, it would be uh, the realization of the Atman, the realization of the self, yeah. Or perhaps in Sufism, uh, Maharifa. So at any rate, this is, this is true knowledge. This is uh, real knowledge, so to speak, uh, right. which uh, moves us um, beyond um, notions and representations into the realm of being. So these would be the three types of knowing. Now, another very important aspect, and please you cut me when, 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 uh, when my time has come because I don't want to speak too much. Uh, I think you said about 30 minutes perhaps. But at any rate, um, another very important point in the chapter, I think, which, is, which I've already touched upon uh, when I mentioned speculative knowledge, I mentioned viewpoints or standpoints as being the, um, the highlights, so to speak, of speculative knowledge. But there is also another notion that is often used by Shion 
in connection uh, with that of standpoint or point of view or perspective. And it is the notion of aspect. Mm -hmm. And when you use this term, it refers to an aspect or face or a facet mm. of the ultimate reality. Mm. In his uh, metaphysical idiom, um, as you know, the ultimate is referred to as absolute, infinite, and perfect. Mm. But in as much as it is infinite, the ultimate has a limitless number of aspects of faces and mm. facets. Mm. And so if you consider this limitless number of aspects on the one hand, that is, the limitless aspects of the object of knowledge, mm. the divine object of knowledge, together with the limitless uh, uh, number of possible viewpoints mm. of the object, mm. uh, then you have metaphysics mm -hmm. as the science of the universal, as René Guénon um, mm. uh, referred to it. Um, and in a sense, um, this is the. This refers also to the, to the notion of divine omniscience. Uh, of course, the human being as such cannot be omniscient, uh, but he can participate in the divine uh, omniscience, so to speak, actively uh, through uh, the power of displacement or through right. the power of moving right. within the space of knowledge. Right. Thank you very much. Well, that, that's a really good introduction to our discussion. Could I ask um, a question now within this framework that you've given us of four basic levels of knowledge? Um, towards the end, I think rather the, on the last page of this edition that I have of conceptual dimensions, Shuan refers to angelic modes of intelligence. Now, how do we situate those angelic modes of knowledge within the framework of the movement from the human, initial, conceptual, provisional, and notional, up through the speculative, and then to the divine knowledge in and of itself, and then through our participation in that? Where do we situate the specifically angelic modes of consciousness to which Shuan refers at the end of this chapter. Well, I think that first of all, <clears throat> when we are referring to angelic knowledge, we are not referring to human knowledge. So it's a different kind of knowledge. Um, and in a sense, um, it is akin to, it is static. Um, as Shuan mentioned it, I think it's, it's limited. Right. Uh, although it is less limited, of course, than the human uh, type of knowledge, but it is still static and, 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 and limited. Right. Um, and so it's, it's in, in a way, it's superior to uh, human knowledge. In another way, it's inferior to it. At least uh, it's inferior to the highest potentiality of human knowledge. Of right, right. Uh, because the highest potentiality of human knowledge is speculative and even higher it's uh, identification. There's something central yes. about the, the human uh, position, um, uh, whereas the 
angelic uh, type of knowledge is in a sense more uh, static and peripheral in a certain mm -hmm. way. So, um, moving now to the speculative, um, would it be true to say that the only knowledge to which we as human fallible beings can have access on the speculative level is perforce determined by the aspect of divine self-disclosure. Let's apply this to the phenomenon of religion, that we're looking at the religions as so many phenomenal self-disclosures of the divine reality, so many aspects of the divine essence which remains forever ineffable, incommunicable, and in, uh, ungraspable by our limited faculties. So when we're looking at the phenomena of religion as self-disclosures of God, are we seeing so many different and necessarily contradictory faces of the one and only ultimate invisible reality, the essence? Or does this speculative fluidity, this flexibility on the epistemological plane, does it allow us to somehow see the religious phenomenon sub specie eternitatis from the viewpoint of God and not simply from the speculative uh, limited viewpoint of human consciousness? Well, I think that that depends um, on what aspect of the of the religious uh, reality you are referring to. Um, if you are referring to the formal system of the religion uh, as we live it, uh, as we experience it, uh, obviously you have a somewhat indirect and uh, formal, by definition, experience of this divine self-revelation. But if you refer to the religion uh, from the point of view of what Chion uh, calls the archetype, mm. that is the, the essence, if you wish, of the, of the message, the, the essence of, the, of that particular or this particular divine self-revelation, then in a certain sense, yes, I think you could say that you have there is a, the intellect may grasp um, that the, the reality of that archetype um, that is the reality of what religion is in the intention of God, so to speak. Right, right. So there is a possibility of attaining um, a degree of objectivity vis-a-vis -vis the different self-disclosures of God allowing us to situate the religious phenomena um, as it were from the viewpoint of the creative intention of God in establishing those religions. Yes. But does that presuppose um, a shift from an epistemology and intellectual approach to a specific methodology that allows one to go from the notional and the speculative into the third and the fourth fourth mode of this identification namely does it presuppose formal spiritual contemplative disciplines in order to as it were open the eye of the heart to enable it to see sub specie eternitatis yes but here again i think there are degrees um, 
degrees of, of knowing. Um, I think there can be uh, an intuition of the archetype of religions, of the archetype of religion, of of religion in general, or the archetype of a particular religion. Right. Uh, a kind of, uh, um, should I say, I don't want to say, a, I want to use an emotional language, but a sense, a kind of instinct of its uh, ultimate meaning and intention. Um, and that's the basis. And at, at, the, at the height or the crown, so to speak, uh, there could be, of course, a contemplative um, apprehension uh, of, of that uh, archetype, uh, that would be wisdom, that would be um, a dimension at least of, 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 of wisdom. Right. So it's, I think it's ultimately, it's more generally, it's the whole, it, it pertains to the whole question of one's ability to read the essence of a particular phenomenon. Right. And the essence of the particular phenomenon is nothing else than what it is and what it means from the point of view of the ultimate, so to speak, yes. or, and therefore as a manifestation, right. or an instantiation of the ultimate, mm -hmm. uh, as manifestation. Mm -hmm. um, so there are different degrees of, of, of interiorization and insight into this meaning or into this intention. But right. right, of course, the contemplative activity, the contemplative life um, deepen and uh, refines uh, what uh, might have been uh, initially simply an intuition. Right. Well, on this question of intuition, I, just before um, we finish this part of the discussion, I wanted to ask you to comment on the very first sentence of the chapter which I'll read out. The true and complete understanding of an idea goes far beyond the first apprehension of the idea by the intelligence, although more often than not this apprehension is taken for understanding itself. While it is true that the immediate evidence conveyed to us by any particular idea is on its own level a real understanding, there can be no question of its embracing the whole extent of the idea since it is primarily the sign of an aptitude to understand that idea in its completeness. So from a pedagogical point of view, how does one go about telling a student of comparative religion that this initial understanding that they have of an idea of this or that religion or of this or that aspect of reality, ontology, phenomenology, whatever it may be, that their initial understanding of the idea is but the sign of an aptitude to understand the idea in all its fullness. How does one communicate that uh, chasm that separates the initial understanding of an idea with the embracing of the idea in all its completeness. I don't know if this can be communicated or if it's a matter, um, primarily a matter of aspiration uh, on the part of the student. Right. Himself. Uh, um, of course, uh, there is also the matter of grace. Um, within the context of traditional world, 
or spiritual paths, um, one of the function of the grace of saints and sages and spiritual masters is precisely to to communicate uh, mm. the flavor uh, or the fragrance of mm. of um, the highest form of knowledge by identification, and therefore to allow this theoretical seed, so to speak, to mm. to germinate within mm. The, mm. the student. So yeah. I think it's um, it's 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 primarily obviously an individual matter. It's not something that can be uh, drawn uh, from the outside, but um, the sacred. Uh, a tradition um, can can facilitate. Um, so that's what I was sort of getting at. That in the absence of a sacred tradition that facilitates the coming to fruition of the theoretical seeds of knowledge, in the absence of that, in today's society, in the kind of intellectual hypertrophy that we see all around us, where ideas are are very superficially grasped skated over on the surface not assimilated in depth that you know oh well that idea pertains to that philosopher and i've been there i've done that let's move on <laughs> nothing is actually meditated upon or thought about deeply and so what i was forgetting at is is some kind of incorporation into a a truly uh, let's call it integral approach to teaching even at universities, even in the modern framework, with all of this this cleverness that passes for intelligence, um, even within that framework, to actually suggest the need for quiet contemplation, be still and know, as the Bible says, this stillness and this capacity just to restrain oneself from wanting to express everything that one thinks one has understood from this idea and just to meditate upon it be quiet and try and be more receptive to, to bring this into the framework of formal teaching by suggesting some kind of what the Buddhists call mindfulness or some kind of contemplative quietness as an essential prelude mm. to closing the gap between the initial understanding of an idea and the fullness of the idea and all its its facets and all its plenitude. Yes, I think it's it's very important, uh, but it is also um, very challenging, and perhaps even impossible, uh, in in the context of a secular university or secular centers of learning in general. Right. Um, that would have been the rule. What you described would have been the rule in an integral educational traditional context right. um, within a relatively homogeneous uh, right. traditional world. Right. Um, but what can be done perhaps in the context of secular, um, secular universities of, or universities within the secular world is uh, for the teacher uh, to point out to the students as often as possible that these texts we are reading uh, together, uh, this text that we are trying to understand, please keep in mind that they entail and entailed much more than a mere theoretical understanding. Mm. And that they were part and parcel of a whole method, of a whole spiritual mm. method mm. of assimilation and mm. realization. Mm. This 
should be reminded of him mm -hmm. uh, to the students so that at least they do not fall into the illusions that you uh, uh, alluded to earlier. Yes, well, this is a good point, I think, to open up to a question or two from uh, our young friend Tom, who is going to uh, pose a few questions. We have about 10 minutes, if that's all right with you, 10 to 15 minutes. So I'm just going to... Good evening. And, uh, thank, thank you for, uh, thank you for making the time. Um, yes, I was actually um, interested in, uh, in uh, more to do with the, um, the method uh, that was being discussed earlier on, the method of, um, well, acquiring essential metaphysical knowledge, um, the, the, the connection, um, the, the when, I, when I was reading through, um, through uh, the book, uh, I kept on wondering, his way of looking at things seems to allow, simultaneously allow too much information in, allow too much in the way of almost paradoxes and contradictions by moving, moving between different perspectives, different, different facets of the truth. Um, but also at the same time, it, uh, I wonder how in his system, how one can have any authentic knowledge at all. Um, how one can actually access essences, the, the essence of, of, the, of the truth. Um, so I've just got a few things written down. Um, obviously, the, what he calls theoretic knowledge, um, it's, uh, it almost seems that it's, uh, you, you can't really get, you can't, you can't access the, the truth at all through it. It's simply, what, what does he call it, um, signs or, uh, or keys um, that are of absolutely no use um, speculatively. Um, but, sorry, I've just got a few things written down here. Oh, um, it was, it was, it was, it was really just, just that. At, at, at one point, um, many different traditions and many different ways of, of viewing the subjects that can contradict one another are all admissible and they can all be believed or they can all be true while at the same time, it's difficult to know how any kind of authentic metaphysical knowledge can be acquired other than through self-identity or through revelation. And it comes back to that method again. Uh, yes. Uh, well, in a way, I think you raise the question again of, um, of uh, realization. That is, um, um, you mentioned uh, that the theoretical knowledge is a kind of key or set of keys um, to open the door uh, or the doors uh, of knowledge, but you have, of course, to enter, uh, to go beyond the door. And, and, and that's, uh, that's, that's the realizational aspect of the matter. And so um, if one remains, of course, on the theoretical level, that's true, there's no access to real knowledge in a certain sense. But once again, uh, we have at the very least a potentiality of knowledge. And depending upon uh, whether one takes these theoretical uh, points that one, one has understood uh, seriously, uh, or more or less seriously, 
then there is the possibility of going beyond and aspiring to assimilate whatever it is we have already understood, at least to some extent, uh, theoretically, theoretically speaking. And this is, as you mentioned, the, 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 the religions and uh, um, Dr. Shakazemi also mentioned earlier on the, the role of the contemplative uh, practices. That's, that's the function of the contemplative practices because the contemplative practices, to use uh, Shion's uh, symbolic language, uh, give to that which is only uh, a surface, so to speak, they give to it a volume. The volume, that's what is spiritual realization, that's what is real knowledge, or at least the deepen of, of knowledge, when knowledge becomes something that is lived, but something that is uh, alive. Again, I go back to uh, knowing is being. Uh, that's, that's a point that you will find in all the greatest, uh, highest forms of mysticism and, and spirituality that the ultimate goal is to be what one knows. Mm -hmm. And that the real knowing is, is a being because the real knowing is something that cannot be taken away from you. You know, this is, for example, the story of, the, the story of uh, Vasily in, the, in his um, autobiography. You know, he, um, when he's, uh, he's, uh, he's stolen his, uh, his notes, his his, 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 the notes he has accumulated from, from his teachers and his readings and, and he's stolen by, by, uh, by thieves on the, on the road and, 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 and he's, he's despaired because he has lost everything he knew with his notes, right? And, and, and he realizes then that real knowledge is more than that, more than notes. Uh, more, than con more than concepts, more than uh, what we call intellectual understanding. And, and, and that's a major step, one of the steps that will lead him to, uh, to search further and deeper and to engage himself in the spiritual path of Sufism in this case. Um, so I don't know if I uh, answered your question, probably not completely, I'm sure, mm -hmm. but perhaps I, I hope I gave you some elements of answer at least. No, certainly, um, and of course, the, uh, the the thieves don't suddenly achieve a spiritual realization by uh, by dint of having the notes, of course. Um, yes. So, so um, another way of putting part of this, at least, would be something like, but in by living uh, this truth, one becomes self-identical with it, and that's the only way of that's, that's almost the only way of achieving that knowledge by becoming self-identical with it. Um, I, I was I was wondering about his um, about his his, uh, his his view of um direct divine revelation uh, sort of uh, or uh, like a, a Pauline moment. Um, what, what do you think of a, uh, a a sudden change like that? Because of course, in that in that, in that instance, the, that individual was not living that particular kind of truth. Didn't wasn't becoming self-identical with that truth either through contemplation or even on a theoretical level but there was a direct well uh, it was directly re reached out down down from uh, from from god um, i was wondering what the um how this fits into this scheme yes that's a very good question because of course there are as many paths um, as there are human beings um so what Shion is describing in this particular chapter 
refers most specifically to what one could call the path of knowledge, uh, which is that of people who have a particular predisposition to, to knowledge, precisely, in, in, in whatever form. Uh, but that's not the case of everybody. There are people who have more uh, predisposed to the path of love, or the path of art, or the path of uh, service, action, and, 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 and so forth. Um, and uh, you have also uh, mystics, uh, what you describe, I think, uh, the kind of experiences you alluded to are those of mystics uh, for whom the, the beginning of the path has, has, has nothing to do or very little to do with the assimilation of concepts. And in this case, it's simply an eruption of the sacred and the transcendent in their life, um, suddenly. Um, but one does not necessarily exclude the other. There could be also a combination of uh, learning, quote unquote, and illumination um, at a particular stage in the process of learning. You find that in the Buddhist tradition, for example, in the stories of Zen masters who have uh, meditated for years, for months and for years on particular kohan or particular mondo, and who at a particular point, uh, for reasons that nobody can fathom, um, reach suddenly um, satori, uh, illumination, right? So you can find a combination of process of learning and the process of knowledge and what you refer to as revelation or inspiration or illumination that is um, a sort of direct um, uh, eruption of the divine within human experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, uh, I realize I, uh, <laughs> the first question I asked you about three questions at once. Um, I, I was just wondering if, if you could uh, clear up one other um, part of it. I was in 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 the in the speculative um, regarding speculative knowledge. Um, it it can be accepted that a number of different diff differing perspectives on obviously the uh, the example he, he used was of uh, uh, that of um, blind blind men um, experiencing an elephant had no even theoretical knowledge of the elephant some thought that uh when they when they're touching the the leg oh this is this is a like a, a tree trunk i think was the uh and other you know others only say no the, the uh this this object is um you know the focus on the ears which, whichever one it was now I, I obviously i understand that in terms of analogy but I, I was wondering what the what his limitations were on what could be Admissible. What what uh, what what contradictions um, between different viewpoints were completely inadmissible? Which ones? Um, which one is? Wh wh where is a paradox a paradox too far when it comes to uniting all of these viewpoints together? Well, the the viewpoints. Um, what is described in the story of the blind man and the elephant is not speculative knowledge. It's rather, I guess, dogmatic knowledge. Ah. Uh, whereby a particular part of the animal is identified with the whole animal, mistakenly, because the person is blind. The person doesn't see the totality of the animal and therefore identify the animal with the particular part of the body that is uh, grasping or touching. So it's, it's in that sense, it's static. It's not speculative. The speculative knowledge would be the situation of 
One, it could be, for example, the situation, obviously, of a, of a person who is circling around the elephant and, uh, and therefore displacing himself, moving about the elephant in order to gain uh, a more encompassing uh, knowledge uh, of the elephant. Um, but in a, in, a, in a certain sense, real knowledge would be identification with the elephant, of mm -hmm. course. Uh, but <laughs> that's impossible in this case. Uh, but speculative knowledge, once again, would be characterized by an ability to move, that is to change perspective on the elephant. And of course, uh, the blind man cannot see uh, opening one's eye, having a vision of the totality and moving at the same time around the animal and being able to see it from a variety of points of view would be uh, a symbolic um, allusion to what speculative knowledge is. And, and in this respect, there is no, you see the, the contradiction in a sense or contradictions uh, disappear because uh, there's a trunk, there's a tail, there's the back, there's the leg. All these are aspects of the one elephant. So there is no contradiction anymore. We go back to what I described earlier as the, the symbol of the circle. Um, and each um, element of the circle is just one aspect of the totality. But the totality at the same time is one by definition. It's not pure multiplicity. So it's not relativism, obviously. <laughs> yes. uh, it's absolutism. And it is at the same time uh, what could be called and what Sean has called is referred to the relatively absolute. So you could speak, if you wish, of a kind of uh, relative absolutism. There is, in Sean, you have absolutism in the sense that uh, his whole teaching is about the primacy of the one absolute. Uh, but at the same time, his work could be considered to be relatively absolutist in the sense that he also takes into account uh, the various relative points of view on the absolute, and also uh, the various ways in which the absolute uh, reveals itself or manifests itself to mankind. A thank you to you, Professor Lord, for giving us your time and sharing with us your insights and your wisdom. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you to you for inviting me. Thank you. So